0: Dozens of University of Michigan students took to the streets this morning to protest racism at the school.
1: Student protests on college campuses across the country have made the news a lot in the past few years. do we want? What do we want? Now. What
2: do we want? What do we want? Now. What do
1: we want? Many of them, in reaction to hate crimes, Racist incidents and students of color feeling unwelcome on their campuses.
2: Out of upstate New York, where Syracuse University is taking action after a series of racist and anti-Semitic incidents were reported on campus. They include a racist manifesto that was reportedly sent to cell phones. Dozens of student protesters have been staging a most sit-in of these protests
1: response, focus on changing the campus climate for students. The protesters say they want to feel safe and represented on campus. But there's this other kind of protest. That's the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign. It might sound like the other protests, but the goal is different. Change society, not the campus. The Prison Divestment Campaign is pushing Harvard to change the way it invests its money. The campaign's demands look beyond the walls of the campus and try to steer resources to the places where structural change can happen. Some student protesters are wrestling with a question, what's the best way to create long-lasting change on college campuses and Is it even possible for the university to change without society changing first? I'm Sabi Robinson, and this is the Educate Podcast. I went looking for answers to these questions. I found the difficulties students experience when they take on injustices they face on campus, as well as the big structural ones happening in society. First, let's take a look at the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign, where students are turning their efforts to tackling greater social problems.
0: My name is Jared Drake, and I'm a PhD student in anthropology at Harvard University. And um, I am one of the organizers with the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign.
1: In the fall of 2017, Jared Drake took a class on race and incarceration in the US. The course centered on something called the Prison Industrial Complex, this term refers to the network of businesses and private companies that support the prison system. The core showed him that there are tons of major companies supplying prisons with goods and services. They sell prisons food and technology or contract cheap labor and probation officers and make the prison system stronger and larger. As part of his research during the class, he and his research partner began looking into Harvard's endowment. They wanted to figure out whether any of the companies that were contributing to Harvard financially We're supporting the prison system in some way.
0: The short of our research was that, yes, uh, the endowment is connected to some of the biggest companies in the prison industrial complex landscape.
1: It's basically impossible to know how much Harvard is really benefiting from the prison system. The school is legally obligated to disclose just 1% of the endowment. So that's all Jared Drake and his partner could analyze. 3% is kept in cash, and the other 96% which amounts to almost $40 billion, well, that's a black box.
0: Harvard has an endowment that's larger than every other university in the U.S. It has an endowment that's larger than the GDP of, of uh, certain nations, um, certainly of, their, of, of certain, like, states in the U.S.
1: But still, out of that 1%, they discovered that $3 million of the endowment is invested in companies that make at least some of their money from prisons. Jared Drake and his partner presented their research at a teaching on campus in February of 2018. In response, a handful of other students from across the university decided they also wanted to be a part of this work. And so the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign was formed. Since then, they've hosted campus-wide forums to share their demands, they've met with administrators, and they protested on and off campus. Harvard says that only $18,000 of its endowment is invested in the prison system, which is a tiny fraction of the $3 million Jared Drake cites. The divestment campaign's number is so much bigger because it takes into account all of the companies the school is tied to that contribute to every part of the prison industry.
0: There are equipment companies uh, such as Axon Enterprises, who outfit the majority of tasers in police departments, uh, in prisons, and jails across the country.
1: It also demands the university cut ties with Amazon, which provides facial recognition software to law enforcement agencies.
0: There are uh, drone manufacturers that uh, a police department's Um, uh, across the country are investing more and more into uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones to surveil uh, poor communities, Black communities, migrant communities.
1: Previous prison divestment movements have demanded that universities just divest from private prisons. But the Harvard campaign demands that the school divest from public prisons as well. Over 90% of incarcerated people are in federal and state prisons. The campaign goes farther than simply wanting more transparency and asking for Harvard to divest. It pushes for Harvard to invest resources in providing educational support programs for people of color, people who have been incarcerated, and their families. The U.S. has the largest prison population in the world, and it's disproportionately made up of people of color and people from low-income backgrounds. In 2017, Black people went to prison at a rate that was nearly six times higher than white people.
0: Money talks. And um, Harvard has a lot of it. Columbia has a lot of it. University of Chicago has a lot of it. Johns Hopkins has a lot of it. So in as much as these institutions are on their faces, educational institutions, they're also lightweight hedge funds. We are merely both illustrating how their current placements of those funds lead to direct harm for Black, brown, oppressed people, and how investments in other locations would actually help alleviate that suffering.
1: Divestment is nothing new, and many of the ideas the campaign uses were borrowed from past divest movements. In the mid-1980s, anti-apartheid activists at many American universities pushed their schools to stop investing in South Africa students pressured the University of California school system to divest over $3 billion from companies doing business with the apartheid government, a move which South African revolutionary Nelson Mandela said changed the national and international conversation on apartheid. It showed that powerful messages could be sent by moving schools' money around. In fact, Harvard has divested from industries before. In 1990, After the U.S. government began distancing itself from the South African apartheid, the school partially divested from South African companies. The university also divested from the tobacco industry around the same time. But Harvard's current president says that these were rare exceptions to the policy. He has echoed time and time again that the university should not use the endowment to achieve political or policy ends. He claims that, quote, There are other ways that the university tries to influence public policy. We don't think that the endowment is an appropriate way to do that. Jared Drake believes otherwise.
0: I do not see the university as a vehicle that can make social change. I see the university as a vehicle that already does make social change. And what I mean by that is the university is already politicized. It's already um um taking a number of sides in terms of again where is the endowment um currently allocated um where are who are the the different speakers to come to campus what are the different institutes to come to campus
1: Jared Drake and the Harvard Prison divestment campaign are working closely with grassroots organizers to design and reshape their demands
0: the answer as to what should be done with Harvard's $40 billion endowment is actually not something that students at Harvard should be answering. That should be answered directly from people who are most impacted by the current situation.
1: Going out to work with the community is a major part of their efforts. So is bringing the community into the school
0: big part of what we've been doing is thinking of ways to bring more and more people, not just to the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign, but to bring more people to prison abolition, to have people learn about it.
1: Prison abolitionists envision a world totally free of imprisonment, policing, and surveillance. With the system of mass incarceration in the U.S. today, it's a pretty tough vision to have. But prison abolitionists say that the strategy pushes people to radically rethink their vision of the future and to do everything they can to undo the damage that mass incarceration has already done.
0: So one of the things that we started doing last spring is something called abolition action assemblies. And these are just um, Saturday sessions for people to come out and like literally study. I mean, this is going to sound weird, but you get people at Harvard to come out and do extra studying like we don't have enough to do already um, for anybody who wants to come. And so we're going to resume those, which I'm really excited about.
1: At Harvard, students were focusing their efforts on changing larger structural issues. But at a lot of schools, students were working on bettering the day-to-day lives of students of color. For instance, in the fall of 2015, several racist incidents against Black students happened at the University of Missouri. In response, a group of Black students issued a list of demands to the university administration. Their demands centered around diversifying their campus and making students of color feel welcome at Mizzou. Our
3: goal is to abolish inequalities at the intersection of race at the University of Missouri-Columbia. They
1: wanted an increase in the number of Black faculty and students, and more funding to hire mental health professionals and build social justice centers one of the students went on a hunger strike for a week until the university president resigned. The protests at Mizzou in 2015 caught the attention of Robin Kelly. He's a professor at UCLA. He published an article in the Boston Review describing the differences he saw between the protests at Mizzou and protests like the prison divestment campaign at Harvard. He says universities will never be able to be hospitable for students of color because they aren't post-racial spaces. So we ask that students be mindful of the way they phrase their demands and set their expectations. They need to challenge the institution rather than asking through a lens that implies it's not part of the larger structure. The article he wrote was titled Black Study, Black Struggle. I met Robin Kelly on a sunny afternoon in his office on UCLA's West Hollywood campus to discuss the ideas he laid out in his article. The wall behind his desk is covered in books by revolutionary philosophers and activists like Sylvia Winter and Walter Rodney. Robin Kelly is a professor of American history and of African American studies. He's currently on sabbatical, but he's taught Black Studies courses for years, and the work he does has a neoliberal, anti-capitalist framework to it. He's also deeply involved and interested in student activism and social movements. He was personally involved in some when he went to college. The 80s, oh my god. So
3: um, it was a decade of intense activism around anti-apartheid movement, the invasion of Grenada, uh, the invasion of Panama, the sanctuary movement. We didn't see ourselves going to college for a career or to enhance our, cult, our social capital. Um, we saw college as a space of contestation and that out of that, we're all going to go and make a revolution.
1: Like student activists today, Robin Kelly and his classmates learned from previous revolutionaries. It
3: was kind of a renaissance, a political renaissance, uh, in terms of thinking and writing. Uh, so many radical thinkers in those days we were reading. Uh, we were reading Angela Davis and we were reading Cornell West. Uh, and Manning Marable, and we were reading, you know, um, classic
1: works. Kelly's years as an activist gave him a better understanding of today's student protests.
3: The critical debate that I saw taking place, though it was more than one debate, was between fighting to make the university more responsive to student needs, uh, to be more um, accepting and... To feel a sense of, a b- of belonging, I mean, this is what universities sell students. Uh, when you go on those tours and you walk around UCLA and people are walking backwards saying, this is Bunch Hall, they are telling you that you're going to be part of a family and we're going to take care of you.
1: On one hand, there are students who get frustrated when the university doesn't fulfill its promise to provide students of color with a safe and supportive environment, like students at the University of Missouri. And
3: when the university fails to live up to that promise, then students were saying, look, we we want to have that sense of belonging. Um, You're excluding us.
1: This is racist and sexist. On the other hand, he says there are students who are trying to use their time at the university to transform society, like Jared Drake and those working on behalf of the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign. Their demands don't assume that there are walls between the school and the rest of the world, they see that the university has the same structural issues as the country, and they don't expect it to change unless society does. And
3: so there are those students that say, look, we don't want to belong to a university that doesn't love us. The university doesn't, is not capable of creating the conditions um, for our growth and well-being. We see the university not so much as an enemy, but certainly as a space that doesn't have that kind of capacity. What we want is to transform society. If we can transform the university, we'll do that too.
1: When he first published the article, he got a fair amount of pushback. Students and other professors were angry at him because they thought he was belittling the efforts of students of color who were focusing their demands on the campus itself. Robin Kelly says this wasn't his intention. We're going to keep
3: creating certain safe spaces for Black and Brown students. We're going to, like, put more black and brown um, authors in the curriculum. All that's important. We're going to have more, you know, black and
1: brown and native professors. It's all great. He doesn't believe the two efforts are mutually exclusive. Increased diversity and mental health services really do make life for students of color at universities better. They're important, he says.
3: Uh, And I'm not um, at all condemning students who don't take that position, but trying to highlight those students who see the university not as somehow a neutral space or a transcendent space, but one that's very much a part of the problem.
1: But instead, he says what schools are saying is this.
3: Well, you know, what we need is to eliminate triggers, uh, have trigger warnings, uh, rather. Um, What we need to do is provide more mental health services, and that's all important. But it doesn't address the larger structural issue.
1: A lot of what Robin Kelly discusses in his piece is the concept of trauma. He believes that by making the conversation about adding more mental health services for students, it makes trauma an individual problem that can be solved internally. Again, these services are important, he says. But what he's advocating for is to tend to the personal traumas while also addressing the structural ones.
3: Though trauma is important, it has to be addressed sometimes a language of trauma, not trauma itself, but the language, a language of, of addressing structural and social issues through um, kind of therapeutic modes or through self-help or through um, cultural competence competency training and this sort of thing uh, actually allows the structure to stay intact. Nothing ever changes. What I was trying to get at was that Sometimes focusing on the personal to the exclusion of the collective and the social, to the exclusion of the structural, uh, basically means that racism, for example, uh, is a matter of bad behavior, bad thoughts, and uh, cultural incompetency. So if we become competent, then we won't be racist, you know, rather than seeing that racism reproduces itself in spite of our best, you know, intentions.
1: In his article, Robin Kelly holds up the study group as a space for students to self-educate and be critical of institutions. What does that have to do with trauma? Well, it has a lot
3: to do with, you know, how do we develop a really sharper critique of institutions like the university, but also it has to do with how we deal with trauma. Study is not necessarily something you do in a classroom. Some of the best work we do, we do in community, as students, as activists, as organizers, outside of classrooms, um, even if classrooms could be stimulating spaces.
1: He says it's critical to remember that it was through struggle and resistance that Black people survived so much violence for hundreds of years.
3: And part of that resistance is struggling with their own individual and collective traumas together, not in isolation, uh, together through struggle and through study. And, through st- and study can be transformative.
1: He actually keeps a piece of paper taped to his desk as a reminder. By the way, I didn't show you this. Um, so this is
3: my little thing
1: that I keep. I have this little
3: drawer on my old raggedy desk where I have taped on it a piece of paper that I write. I wrote, um, love, study, struggle. Uh, And that's, I had to pull it out to remind me
1: that that's what I'm supposed to be doing all the time. Kelly wrote the article, Black Study, Black Struggle, in March of 2016. Even in the few years since then, he believes progress has been made by student activists. Their efforts are becoming more global and unified, he says.
3: If I were to rewrite the article, uh, the only thing I would change is to try to tend to the now. Because that was like three years ago, three, four years ago. And now... I actually think um, students have learned so much, so much more advanced, and they're always getting smarter and and more committed, more militant every year. Um, and so, you know, part of writing that piece was about expressing what I'm learning from the students, because they took the lead, not me.
1: Activist Tracy Wilson-Kleekamp agrees that, of course, you can't detach the university from the society it exists in. But in response to scholars like Robin Kelly, she says that the work students do inside the campus walls to change the culture is urgent and can lead to greater change. I
2: don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all scheme for disrupting um, Mm -hmm. institutional practices.
1: Tracy Wilson-Kleekamp helps students at the University of Missouri brainstorm tactics and demands during the protests of 2015. She's president of the nonprofit Race Matters Friends, which advocates for racial equity in Columbia, Missouri. The group and other activists supported the students behind the scenes. She came to Mizzou as a diversity recruiter for the medical school, and now she's teaching and studying to get her PhD. She agrees with Robin Kelly that asking for safe spaces and asking for more diversity and inclusion initiatives isn't strategic.
2: It doesn't disrupt or intervene in the institutional practices. That's easy. They'll give them that. Then they'll go right back to doing what they were doing. It's it's not that it's a bad idea. It's not politically strategic. And that's, it's like the students. No one's told them that.
1: No one's shown them how to do that. She believes that schools are sold to students as places where they'll feel accepted and not have to encounter so much blatant racism in their daily lives. But that just isn't the reality, she says. Their system is not designed.
2: it was never planned to have black students. It was never planned to have female students. It was never It was never planned for that
1: plus. It's difficult to frame demands when you don't fully grasp the scope of the structures that are holding you back. You don't know any better. You
2: have no world experience to tell you
1: that you are trying to negotiate
2: with an institutional, historic, oppressor, rapist, colonial settler. Okay? Mm -hmm. They don't do apologies. Their job is to get their way and to look good. Period. In the story. If they have to run you over a few times to get there, that's OK, too. It sounds so, really it sounds really horrible, but it's
1: so important to understand that we're talking about young people. Tracy Wilson-Kleekamp says that going up against white supremacy and the institutions that support it is no small task. But she believes that disrupting the power structure at schools by making white people uncomfortable can lead to systemic change. Inspired and emboldened
0: by their peers at the University of Missouri, whose protests led to the resignation of the school's president,
3: activist students are following suit from Yale to Ithaca College. Students at
1: Ithaca College upstate- the protests at Mizzou led students at dozens of schools around the country to fight against the racism they experience on campus. Several other university presidents were pushed to resign. Even professors accused of perpetuating racism left.
2: Because they're not going to do anything while you're negotiating with them to do the right thing by you. You have to make them miserably uncomfortable.
1: At Harvard, Jared Drake isn't focused on increasing campus diversity or on increasing resources for students of color. He and the other students at the prison divestment campaign are looking to make changes outside of the campus. But Jared Drake says it's okay that some student activists focus their efforts on changing their life on campus. He says that both approaches are important and not as different as they seem.
0: In fact, I think very much so that black students, that uh, undocumented students will actually feel much safer if their university was not invested in systems that exploit and harm the communities that many of the students come from.
1: When he was an undergrad, he actually started a group called the Yale Black Men's Union.
0: To provide space for black men to, to come together, to support each other through mutual uh, empowerment, to um, engage with, with folks in the city of New Haven.
1: These spaces are necessary, but he also believes that having them sometimes stops universities from doing more.
0: The universities oftentimes use those groups or use their existence as like an excuse to um, ignore other structural changes that need to be made.
1: Hiring more Black faculty and admitting more students of color is out of their control. But Jared Drake says that students don't need the university to create spaces for them. He points out that on most campuses, students of color already do that themselves. At Harvard, the prison divestment campaign brings the community into their events.
0: This The space that we've created with the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign certainly makes me feel more welcomed on the campus. So it definitely is like creating, it's like doing sort of the untangling, the structural complicity and then also giving folks space to like just be their truest, um, boldest, blackest, queerest selves and it's, it's beautiful.
1: This February, Jared Drake and four other students from the Prison Divestment Campaign turned up the heat on the university. They sued Harvard and several senior administration members, including current President Lawrence Bacow. Their goal is still to get the university to divest from prisons, but in the lawsuit, the students are accusing the university of being in violation of its charter. They claim that the university's charter, quote, requires accountability to donors surrounding the use of funds. The students hope that the school will be forced to disclose more information about its endowment and expose the extent to which the school is really benefiting from the prison system. Harvard student activists have tried to use the courts before, but this time, they've refined their strategy. Back in 2014, students filed a lawsuit hoping to push the school to withdraw its investments that were tied to fossil fuels. The judge threw that case out and said that the students lacked standing to bring the suit. So the prison divestment activists are taking a different approach. Each of the students suing Harvard donated money to the university last month. Now, they filed a lawsuit as donors to Harvard, not as students. That's it for this episode. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. This episode was produced by me, Sabi Robinson, and edited by Chris Julin and Alex Baumhart. It was mixed by Corey Schreppel. We partner with the Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. Thanks for listening. This is APM.